If you would, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. And while you're standing, let's read together. What a beautiful song, isn't it? Because truly, it doesn't make a lot of sense that we should gain, that we should be rewarded for Christ's sacrifice, but so is the Father's love for us. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It would probably be helpful if you knew that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We did the first part of this last time I was here. Now we will do chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 31. This is the word of the living God. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have sung your praises. Certainly not nearly enough we could sing your praises for a thousand lifetimes and never run out of things to say. Never totally capture the fullness of your glory. Never exhaust the bottomless well of your goodness, Lord. We could drown in the ocean of your mercy and love before we ever reach the shore. But here we are, Lord, at your word, to listen to your word, to hear from you directly, not through some dramatic experience, but simply the Spirit applying the text to our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would use this broken vessel to communicate effectively and clearly your word for your people, that you might be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Gabby and I were having a conversation recently about the social justice and wokeness movement. If you ever need a date night idea, there's one. And we were talking about how it has truly become its own religion. And in this conversation, we tried to look at the ways that it resembles a religion. And we both could clearly see, as can anyone else, that it's really nothing more than just a works-based religion repackaged. And this got me thinking about how every false religion has this in common. Whether it's Catholicism, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it's the Mormons, the Muslims, or whatever else, they all have a belief system that inevitably comes back to simply being another brand of works-based salvation. Everything outside of Christ 
requires that you earn your own salvation. It's the idea that if you do enough good things, whatever those good things are, that you can go to heaven or achieve enlightenment or be a good person or be woke or whatever else it may be. Man in his sinfulness is always looking for a way to find a new door and a new path to heaven that will allow him to stand on his own achievements without relinquishing the favorite idols of his heart. This is what every works-based religion is, is about. Man in his sinfulness thinks himself righteous enough to merit right standing in the eyes of a holy and perfect God. This view clearly both elevates man and it brings down God. But as we saw last time we were together, and as you know very well, the message of Scripture is that if you want to be lifted up, you must humble yourself and bring yourself down low and essentially make yourself nothing, knowing that Christ is everything, knowing that I bring nothing to Him of any value, but He gives me all that I need. It is because of all of this, these foolish means of salvation that man invents, that God sees it fit in His own good and perfect wisdom to save in a way that the world seems to think is foolish. But not only that, He also saves people the world deems foolish. And if that is offensive to us this morning, let's just see what the text has to say, why don't we? Let's begin by looking at the divine privilege and God's wisdom, verses 26 through 28. Let's read it again. For consider your calling, brothers. Think of what he's saying. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. We saw that the last, the last time that we were in this section of Scripture, at least in chapter 1, it was verses 18 through 25, that the Paul is getting at that there is only one thing that separates all people. And it's not social class, it's not your education level, it's not uh, whether or not you come from a noble family or a well-known family. The one thing that separates all of mankind, all people throughout all of history, is whether or not they believe in the word of the cross. That is the one differentiator. In the section that we last visited, Paul was more focused on the unbelieving world. And in this section, he will be more focused on the believing who are in the world. As we consider the divine privilege and God's wisdom, I actually want to kind of take a step back and look at our section again from last time that we were together. Look back with me at verse 21. It says, For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. Here's the key words. It pleased God. Through the folly 
of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God. This Greek word here is very important. It's used 12 times this way in the New Testament. And eight of those 12 times, it's referring to how pleased God the Father is with God the Son. So think about that level of pleasure the Father takes in His Son. That's how strong this word is. It's the word that you remember from when Jesus was baptized, when the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Paul is using this word here to show that God delights It brings him joy. He he delights in keeping himself with those who want to reach him by means of worldly wisdom, keeping himself from those people and instead revealing himself to the world in a foolish way. What's that foolish way, my friends? Through preaching. Through preaching. The phrase in the Greek, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible It actually can be translated that it pleased God through the folly of preaching. It pleased God through the folly of preaching. God has always seen it fit to use preaching to communicate His Word. Have you ever thought about that? He doesn't just send a message in a bottle and say, Hey, dear world, this is God. He sends a preacher, doesn't He? In Isaiah 58 The prophet is told to cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. If you ever wonder why sometimes I'm loud, that's why. Ezra 8 records for us that Ezra leading what was essentially a worship service. And do you know what Ezra is doing in that worship service? He's preaching the word. He opens up the law of Moses, and my friends, this service lasted all day long. You can forget about going to Abuelos for lunch at Ezra's service. He's preaching the law of Moses. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit fell, what did Peter do? He preached, and 3,000 people were saved. Because of Peter, well, certainly not. It was God choosing to use the folly of preaching to save some. Of course, many more examples could be given. But the point is that God, having the divine privilege to do so, has chosen to save people through the preaching of the word of the cross. There's not another way, my friends. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Though this message is deemed absolutely foolish to the world, and the world deems God dead even, though they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, God has sovereignly chosen to send men to preach His word, and by the preaching of His word, He draws His own to Himself. What did the Jews look for? Not preaching. They were looking for signs. What were the Greeks looking for? They were looking for wisdom, but God sent preachers. Let's consider how this is evidenced in Scripture for a moment. The Jews, in them always seeking a sign from Jesus, we see in Matthew chapter 12 and 16 
that Jesus is approached by the religious elite. And what are they doing? They're asking Jesus for a sign to validate who, that he is who he says he is. But Jesus refuses and he says that it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Well, that's a whole other message on its own, isn't it? It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. He goes on to say, but no sign will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. He explains that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what's he foretelling there? His death, burial, and resurrection. Or another way of saying it is he's foretelling the word of the cross, isn't he? The Jews were seeking a sign, but they were given the word of the cross. They wanted a sign because they couldn't believe this was their Messiah. This was the God, the man that God sent to restore the kingdom of Israel. This, this guy, they couldn't believe that it was him. It wasn't that the Jews had no concept of a Messiah. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up and he's talking about being a Messiah. It wasn't that. It was that they couldn't believe that this was their Messiah. They were looking for one. They knew the prophecy from Isaiah 9 that said that the government was going to be on his shoulder and that he was going to rule on the throne of David. So what were they looking for? Is a man who had high standing. A man who would come in pomp and circumstance. Who would lead Israel into battle and restore the kingdom back to Israel. Isn't this exactly what the disciples asked Jesus in the beginning of Acts chapter 1? Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They still aren't getting it. That's not what this is about, you guys. I am the Messiah. He was the Messiah, not me. Don't, let's not get that confused. The Jews knew that text very well. But instead, what did they get? A carpenter from Nazareth. And can anything good come from Nazareth? This was a nothing, no good kind of town. Surely our Messiah wouldn't be born in Nazareth. And this is why Isaiah says of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty. He was despised and rejected by men. That's the Messiah? This is the guy who's going to restore the kingdom? They hated him and his message so much that what did they do? They killed him. But not just in the cover of night. They didn't just slip him a little something. They put him to open shame in the most embarrassing, shameful way to die naked on a cross like a criminal. This was the Messiah. He's going to save us. He couldn't save himself. He died. How's this going to be the one that God sent us? No, they couldn't accept that this was their Messiah. He was a stumbling block to the Jews, and they hated to hear about the word of the cross. And the Greeks, on the other hand, they loved their high and lofty wisdom so much that the simple message of the gospel was absolutely foolish to them. Acts chapter 17, you see Paul in the Areopagus. And what's happening there? The Greeks are gathered around to hear 
new stories of wisdom from different places, and they're there sharing new things with each other. And then comes Paul, and Paul is doing what? He's preaching the word of the cross. And at first, the Greeks said, what does this babbler have to say to us? And they answered, oh, he's just preached, he's telling us about foreign divinities, And so they sit around and they listen to him. And they were intrigued at first until Paul brought up the resurrection. And then some walked away and they said, man, what a ridiculous message this is. But you know what? Some that day wanted to hear more and they were saved. What a stark contrast this is. Brilliant philosophers thinking this is absolutely foolish And some other people saying, wait, hold on a second. This message is wisdom from God. This message has power. I believe in this message. And so it is today that there are many who will seek a sign. There are others who want to hear new uh, humanistic ideas and philosophies. And they will hear the word of the cross and say, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. I will have nothing to do with it. But some, like you, my friends, will hear it and say, I know this is wisdom from God. This is not a message like any other message. Though the Jews hate it and the Greeks hate it, this message is wisdom from God. We saw back in that passage the God saving in a foolish way. But now we see that God saves those who are foolish In the world, of course. This passage isn't just outright calling you a fool. It's saying that the world, according to the world, that we're not anything great in the world, except for we believe in the message of the cross. Look at what he says. Consider your calling, brothers. Calling here is not being used in the way that we think of it today. It's not meaning a calling to a vocation or a calling to the pastor or a calling to missions. He's referring to your initial call to salvation. And how do we know that? We know that from the word itself. It means an authoritative summons, a summons to the hope of salvation in Jesus. But another reason that's perhaps even stronger is just the context of this message here, the context of this text. He's speaking about the word of the cross, about the gospel. Paul is, in other words, saying, consider when you first heard and believed in the foolish preaching of the cross. Think about where you were. Were you rich? Were you a president? Were you a mayor? Were you a governor? Were you a person of high and lofty status? And he's saying, if you would consider your own calling, you would see that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you have a noble birth, have a a well-known family. Whereas in the previous section, we saw that man in all of his wisdom cannot muster up saving faith of his own will. Here now we see that God bestows saving faith upon whom he wills. It is, as we've been saying, the divine privilege that God has in being God. God has the divine privilege to save who he chooses to save. 
It's His right. It's the Godness of God. It's what makes God God is having the privilege, the right, and the ability to do whatsoever He pleases. And that would be absolutely terrifying if we didn't also know that God is holy, and God is kind, and God is good, and He's loving. So then, my friends, what we can know is that in God doing it this way, that this must be the best way to do it. You know why? Because if God didn't save some, there would be none who were saved. Not one of us. You know why? Because in our own sinful state, we are that previous section. We think the word of cross is foolish. We think the gospel is nonsense. Think back to before you were saved. Was there not a time that you heard it and you said, that's ridiculous. You want me to give up my life to someone I can't see? I didn't ask Jesus to die on the cross for me. I didn't need him to. Perhaps you said something like that. But now you are in Christ Jesus because you have believed. Paul is saying these people were nothing special. There was nothing special about you. Now why is he pointing this out? Because you and I in our own carnal minds, we look at the outside, don't we? We say, look at what I had to bring to the Lord. Or look at what that person has. Surely they have the divine favor of God upon them. But Paul is saying, no, not many of you were wealthy. Not many of you had uh, high standing positions in this culture. You weren't doctors and lawyers or policy makers. You're just a bunch of regular folks. Oh, to be a regular folk in the kingdom of God. I'll take that any day of the week. The unbelieving world in all of their own self-righteous wisdom, they look upon the chosen of God and they say, Him? Her? I know their background. I know what that person is like. You mean to tell me that God saved that person? I don't think so. That's that text being proven in your own life. A fisherman? A criminal? A homemaker? A farmer? Are you kidding me? That's the person that God's going to save? I don't think so. But even in the life of Jesus himself, we see this evidenced, don't we? Because they could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was not held in high regard by the elites of his day. He wasn't considered royalty. He wasn't known as being from a noble city. Isaiah told us that he had no majesty. There was nothing in human terms spectacular about Jesus Christ. Nothing in human terms. Yet, those who had eyes to see would say what John said in John chapter 1, that we have seen his glory. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only one of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was not admired in society. He didn't stand out as noteworthy. So, my friends, if this is true of Jesus, how much more so will it be true of you and I? And how much more so should we be okay with that? Think of your calling, brothers and sisters, and you will know this to be true. Think of your own background, your own family tree, your own social standing, and you will acknowledge that there was nothing in 
particularly spectacular that you had to bring to God. There was nothing that you could bring him to say, look at me, I'm a celebrity. I have all of this fame that you can use at your disposal. But even if you were, this text shows us that God saved you in spite of those worldly accolades, not because of them. Often we think of how great it would be if God would save more celebrities. Wouldn't it be great if God would save LeBron James? Wouldn't it be great if God would save this person and that person and this singer and this rapper, whoever? Think of the influence that these people have that they could bring to the kingdom of God. God says, no, I don't need any of that. Charles Spurgeon said the gospel is like, trying to defend the gospel is like defending a lion in a cage. You just let the lion out. He'll do it himself. God will save on his own. He saved us on his own, did he not? God doesn't look at the outside like you and I. Would it be great if celebrities were saved? Of course, simply for their own salvation's sake. But God does not need it. Consider the rich young ruler. From the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what did he do? He came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know what you must do. You just need to obey the law. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbors as yourself. What did the rich young ruler say? I've done all of those things. (laughs) I'm doing pretty good, okay? I've done that stuff. And Jesus says, okay, well, you lack one thing. If you would be perfect, sell all of your possessions, give to the needy, and come and follow me. This was the one thing this man couldn't do, wasn't it? Because the text says that he walked away sad because he had many possessions, or perhaps we find out that many possessions had him. Do you see how his elite status and his money was only a hindrance? To the kingdom of God. It was not something that enabled him unto salvation. Luke chapter 18, verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All of the things that you and I look at, And we say, wow, that person's clearly blessed. That person's clearly blessed. Look at their home. Look at their car. Look at the vacations they take. Look at the clothes that they wear. We look at those things and we say, this person has God's divine favor upon them. And they look in the mirror and say, yes, you're right, I do. Look at my 401k. Look at the money I have stashed away in a savings account. I do have God's divine favor upon me. But what this text shows us clearly And none of those things are of any eternal value. Jesus tells us to store up riches, not here, but in heaven. Because here, moth and rust destroy. You could be the most wealthy billionaire or trillionaire on the earth, and when you die, it all goes to someone else. You can't take it with you. And oftentimes, many of these things become a hindrance for us 
is what Jesus is telling us. And so the disciples say, then who can be saved if not these people? And what did Jesus say? What is impossible with man is possible with God. The man became sad, perhaps because Jesus exposed what this man really found to be of value. And even the disciples are astonished that this man doesn't have eternal life. But we are shown clearly that what it takes to inherit eternal life is a sovereign act of God. It's not anything that you and I bring to the table. It's not your riches. It's not your influence. It's not anything on the outward. It is only God's choosing. Because, my friends, there have been plenty of people who are dead in their sins who own a Porsche. Plenty of people dead in their sins have a multi-million dollar home. None of those things are salvific. None of those things are of any eternal value. But all that is, is what Christ does in the heart. On the last day, there will be many celebrities and politicians and rich and affluent people who will come to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, did we not donate to good causes? Did we not say thank you, God, when we won awards? Did we not attend church as often as we could? And what will Jesus say? He will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because none of those things save you. He will push aside those high and lofty people to reach for the janitor, to reach for the guy who's covered in tattoos, the former drug addict, the former prostitute, the regular Joe who works in an eight to five. And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because God does not look on the outward appearance God chooses instead what is weak so that His power is demonstrated. Not your worthiness, but His worthiness. Not your might, but His might. Not your value, but His value. Not your wisdom, but His wisdom. I think that on the last day we might find that the body part that we use the most is this. Why? Because when we walk around asking each other, how did you get here? We will say, I don't know, but the king invited me. I don't know, but the king invited me. And that's why I'm here. And that is the reality, my friends, that no one will be in the kingdom of heaven who has not been personally invited by the king himself. Look at that word. It's there three times. God chose God chose, God chose. My friends, let's not complicate this. It's very simple. What does the text say? It says that God chose. God chooses those who are saved. The same way that the disciples asked, who then can be saved? You know what the answer is? Those whom God chooses. God chooses us unto salvation. And you know the great comfort that we find in this text is that there's nothing that you could do to merit that choice. You're not standing in a lineup of rich, affluent people, smart people, well-educated people, and saying, man, how am I going to measure up to all of these others? Instead, what God is doing is looking for the weak one, 
looking for the one who has nothing. There's the old Christian cliche that says God only helps those who help themselves. Reject that. That's not true. The reality is that God only helps those who cannot help themselves. God only helps those who would be of nothing without his help. The human heart is so lost and so hardened and so sinful and so dead to the things of God that it takes much more than your self-righteousness and a prominent social standing to earn right standing before God. God must exercise His divine privilege to save or else no one would be saved. And we know this to be so true because Paul doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. He says it three times to emphasize it and drive the nail home. God chose you. If you are in Christ this morning, feel your unworthiness. Feel it. We live in an era of self-esteem. No, have no esteem before the Lord because you have nothing to bring Him And you know what? You didn't need to. You didn't bring yourself there. You didn't bring yourself to the foot of the cross. You didn't bring yourself into the kingdom. God chose you despite anything in this world that you think you have of value or not. If God chose none unto salvation, none would have salvation. Why is he doing it this way? For one ultimate purpose, the divine purpose in God's wisdom. Verses 29 through 31. The divine purpose in God's wisdom. Listen, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses to save this way. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What does that mean? The very clear, immediate teaching of this text is that God is choosing people, choosing to save in such a way that the only thing that you can say in His presence is it was all of grace. It was All of grace. As the old Puritan said, let it be written on the gates of hell, wrath deserved, and on the gates of heaven, free grace. That's what it is, my friends. It is all a work of grace. But listen, this is not an opportunity for the weak in the world to puff up their chests, now is it? It's not an opportunity for us to say, well, we're of nothing, so we're actually of something. We're better than the rich man. No, absolutely not. The text clearly says, so that no human being, not you, not me, not the presidents, not kings, not anyone, so that no one will boast in the presence of God, Paul is clearly teaching us that God has done it this way for that purpose, so that no one boasts. 
But all that you will have to say is that it's all of Christ. Christ did this. Christ brought me here. It's because of His merit, because of His sacrifice. No one will stand before the great white throne after having been declared righteous in the high court of heaven and say, I did this all by myself. No one will. All of us will stand there grateful because Christ did it all. God chooses to save everyone who will come to saving faith because it is his divine privilege to do so. And he thus removes any right to boasting in his presence. But notice further yet, Paul hammers this home again by saying in verse 31, I'm sorry, verse 30, and because of him, the him here is God the Father. Why are you saved? Verse 30, Because of Him. Why are you eternally secure in the hands of the Father? Verse 30. Because of Him. Why are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Verse 30. Not because you chose Him, but because of Him. The Father planned your salvation. The Son purchased your salvation. And the Spirit applies that work to your heart. The Godhead orchestrated your salvation from beginning to end and everything in between. Notice he tells us here that Jesus became to us wisdom. Though we were not wise in the world, Jesus became wisdom from God. We could say in a very real real way that if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are more wise than the wisest man who has not believed because you have believed in the one thing that matters. The one thing that matters on the last day is have I believed in the word of the cross? Have I truly believed upon Jesus? In this, we also see that we didn't bring any wisdom to the table. God supplied it all. And then he says that he became to us righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. I want you to notice those four things that you did not have and you cannot muster up on your own outside of Christ, but Christ becomes those things for you. What are they? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. You have no wisdom of your own to bring God. You have no righteousness of your own before God. You cannot sanctify yourself before God. You cannot redeem yourself from the punishment of sin. You can do none of those things. But when you trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, He becomes all four of them for you. That is wonderful news, isn't it? It's like the old hymn says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or more sharply, as Jonathan Edwards said it, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The beauty of it all is that though we have nothing of our own, Christ has made us his own. Beloved, let us take great care that after having been brought to Christ through the wisdom of God that the world deems foolish, that we do not then find ourselves trusting in the foolishness 
that is the wisdom of the world. What do I mean by that? We must not look to the world to tell us how to be Christian. Do not look to people who are dead in their sin to tell you how to walk in newness of life. Do not look to people who live in the dominion of darkness to tell you how to be a child of light. Do not tell pe- let people who are still children of wrath, children of Satan, tell you how to live as a child of God. Instead, there is one source, and it's right here, the open book in your lap. This is where we find that wisdom. We must look to this bottomless well of wisdom that is the inspired word of God further. You didn't and couldn't merit salvation in the first place. So then, you can know that God factored in all of your sinfulness, all of your weakness, all of your foolishness, all of your broken promises, all of your inconsistency, all of your backsliding. He factored in every one of those things when he elected you unto salvation. And you know what? Not one of them stopped him. Not one of your character traits stopped him. You couldn't do anything to bring yourself to God. God brought you. You can do nothing to separate yourself from God. God holds you. I hope you find great comfort in that this morning. That our salvation was purchased once and for all. There is nothing that you can do to deserve it or to lose it. God loves you as much as he loves the Son because you are clothed in the righteousness of his Son. Take great comfort in that this morning. Let's stand. Paul quotes from Jeremiah 9. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. When we walk into the gates of paradise, there will be three words on our lips. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. So if we know that to be true, that that is our future reality, my friends, let us live with that in mind now. That everything we do is unto his glory. Let us boast in Christ alone, not in anything that we have in this world. Not in any standing, not in any money, not in any promotions or positions or where you go to church. Let us boast in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. O sovereign God, we are just absolutely breathtaking by your sovereignty that you choose people to be saved and you choose what is weak and foolish and low and despised in the world 
Because you do not need any of those things. You have it all. You are all sufficient. You are self-sufficient. Lord, we honor you and we glorify you for that. And I pray that we would glory in the fact that we had nothing to bring you, but you did everything for us because of your great love towards us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would live lives of gratitude in light of that, Lord, and never puff up our chest above one another, never hold our head high in the air towards one another, but that we would always strive for humility before you, for you are everything. Without you, we have nothing. Go with us and keep us, Lord. Remind us of these great truths. In your holy name we pray. Amen.